If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of James. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11 in a minute, and I'll read them in just a couple minutes. After three and a half years back in Southern California, one aspect of driving is, uh, is still intriguing to me. It's the fast track lane. It's over there on the left somewhere. Now, as someone uh, who really has a very short drive, uh, fast track is kind of like a country that you don't want to mistakenly cross the border into in case you get some kind of fine or arrested. It just seems mysterious and wonderful how quickly people seem to go. I don't really know much about it. I don't really understand it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't need to. I know some of you could probably explain, explain it all to me. But the part of Fast Track that most confuses me is when I'm on the 91 going west. So like if I'm returning from, from, from Riverside to Anaheim, 91 going west. And there's a section where, car, where the carpool lane and the Fast Track lane seem to coexist in the same place but I can't quite tell. I don't really know if I belong over there or not. Are they separate lanes? Should I get over there? Will I be fined? Will I be pulled over? I don't know. Driving in South, South California is very complex. All I know is that while I'm stuck in traffic, I see cars over there just flying, and it looks great. Often, life can feel like that. Your lane is at a standstill, well, the one next to you, right next to you, is cruising at the speed limit, and more often in Southern California, far beyond the speed limit. And we can experience that in all kinds of ways in our life, kind of feeling as if we're in a traffic jam while others are flying. Maybe you are having difficulty affording rent, while others have already paid off their homes. Maybe you are longing to be married and have children, while many of your friends have just had their third kid. There's, there's a lot of that going on at CBC. Maybe your job is tedious and heart-sapping and you dread going back each Monday, but others have jobs that are creative and invigorating. and They love going back. Maybe you've always exercised, you've always watched what you eat, but you suffer from a number of health conditions while your fast food loving friend who's a total couch, a couch potato, goes and gets their physical and has better numbers than you do. Today, from James 1, 9 through 11, we're going to learn how to live wisely in relation to our circumstances. How to live wisely in relation to our circumstances, whether we are poor or rich, through life's highs and lows. We'll learn to live with skill, whether we are enjoying the best of times or just struggling to get by, whether we are in a traffic jam or in the fast track lane. James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in, in, in Jerusalem, wrote to the Jewish Christians in the areas north of, uh, of Israel. He wrote to them, so that they would live in a manner consistent of their commitment to Christ. It was hard days uh, and, and early days in, in the church, maybe within 10 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. And these early days in the church were, were not easy for the new Jewish Christians. Not only were Jews already 
and ostracize my, 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 my minority and the areas in the Gentile world that uh, James was writing to. But those committed to Christ were even further marginalized from those Jews and sometimes by the Jews often. While some Jewish Christians had been able to maintain their wealth, many believers were struggling financially. They were persecuted by the rich. They were oppressed. In James 1 verses 2 through 4, we saw a couple weeks ago, James taught the Christians how they were to respond to their trials, how they were to respond with joy, how they were to endure because God was maturing them. In James verses 5 through 8, we saw last week that James was teaching them that responding with joy and this kind of endurance would require a commitment to ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to put truth into practice, to live life with, with, with a commitment to doing life God's way, in obedience to his commands, seeking to obey his commands as much as possible. In verses 9 through 11, James turns his attention towards a major challenge that these, these Christians faced, enduring in relation to money. Enduring in relation to money. And that's true whether they had... Uh, too little or whether they had more than, than enough. Enduring would require wisdom. In this section, section, James' primary focus is poverty and wealth. And I don't want to miss the force that it should have for us as that primary focus. But I think that James' command applies to many other areas beyond money and possessions. In a culture where many are rich, if not most, we may be humble and exalted for other reasons. This, this is true of youth. This is true of the experience in high school and college, but not only there. You might feel humble or, or exalted because of your appearance, because of your intelligence, because of your social skills, because of your education, because of your ethnicity because of your giftedness. And each of those could be reason for being brought low or lifted up. Now, like I said, I don't want to lose the force of this passage. We need to think about poverty and riches, and, and, and by God's grace, I want to push us there. But James 1, verses 9 through 11, is, is a passage we can apply to many ways in which we are brought low and in which we are lifted up. And I'm going to read it now. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and reach back to verse 2, but I'll read up to verse 11 of James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect or, 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 or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect anything, that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. 
so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In James 1, 9 through 11, James teaches us three ways to respond to God's providence, to do what God has decreed for your life, the circumstances surrounding your life. We're going to see three ways to respond to God's providence so that we rejoice in spiritual reality rather than boast in our circumstances. We're going to see three ways to respond to God's providence in our lives so that we rejoice, boast, exalt in spiritual reality rather than rejoice in our circumstances. So here is the first way we need to respond. When you are low, rejoice in your exaltation. When we are low, rejoice in our exaltation. We see that in verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high, in his high position. The phrase of humble circumstances, or, 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 or lowly if you have the ESV, describes these, these brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, both of those translations, humble circumstances and lowly, reveal that the word doesn't only re- refer to one's, to one's e- economic conditions. The word means more than poor. The same word is simply translated as humble in James 4.6 where it says that God gives grace to the humble. That's to the lowly or or to the poor. But the focus in James 1, 9 is on the circumstances which lead to one being overlooked. The reasons why someone is viewed as insignificant in most people's evaluations. Because of the contrast that James sets up with the rich in verses 10 through 11, we, we, we know that James' focus here is money and wealth. Now, no doubt, some Jews who had been financially well off before accepting Christ had lost all. No one went to their businesses or their property was taken back. They were thrown in jail. Others who had been impoverished before Christ, as much of the Middle Eastern and ancient Mediterranean world were, were treated even worse than they had been previously. There's also potential that James wrote this letter around the great famine that occurred during the reign of Claudius, which, which would have affected even more, particularly those who are poor. In the Jewish mindset, being wealthy was evidence of God's favor. And we saw that the Pharisees struggled with this. It was assumed that those who obeyed God would be blessed financially by God. Therefore, one's relationship with God could be deduced by what one's financial security was. The poor were those who were dismissed by men and many assumed ignored by God. Not only did the poor face the reality of hunger, of malnourishment, of the sickness that followed, they had the stigma of being unrighteous people, those who'd been rejected by God. James was about to call for a complete reversal of that evaluation. To see lowliness, not as evidence of God's disfavor, but as a spiritual benefit. And to see privilege as a spiritual hindrance. Now James doesn't tell the saints, do everything you can to escape your humble circumstances. You got to get out. Now that isn't that it's wrong to try to improve your your financial being, but he doesn't tell them to get out of those humble circumstances. Instead, he commands them something that's so radically different, to glory in their high position. 
The word translated glory in the New American Standard Bible and boast in the ESV has the idea of rejoicing or exalting in something. Now, that, that, that same word can refer to sinful boasting in, in, in the Greek version of, of Psalms. We've seen Psalm 49, verse 6. It says, even those, and it's talking about the wicked there, who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. And that, of course, is a wrong boasting, a taking pride in, a, 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 a wrapping themselves in the comfort and the security of their money. James uses this word boast in a negative way in James 4, 16 to describe those who assume that their planned business ventures are going to go well. He says in James 4, 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And this is that same word boasting. What he's talking about in James 4, 16 is a sinful taking pride in, 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 in who you know and what you have and in what you're going to accomplish. That's sinful boasting. But the word can also be used of, of righteous rejoicing of exalting in what God has mercifully given you, of, of what God has done. We see that in Romans 5, verses 2 and 3, where Paul says, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. We take joy in these things. We boast in them. Not in the tribulations themselves, because of what God brings about perseverance. It's actually a very similar passage to James 1, 2 through 4. We see that the tension of this word boasting in, in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, and I don't think that any New Testament writer used this word boasting without thinking of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, and here's not the sinful pride, Boast of this, take joy in this, exalt in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. See, there's a sinful boasting in wisdom, in might, in riches, in all that we have accomplished. But there's a righteous boasting, a rejoicing, and exalting in that we know God. And that's the kind of boasting he's calling them here to. James calls on those in, in humbling circumstances to boast. Now notice he doesn't call on these impoverished Jews to boast in their ethnicity, in their rich history, in their culture, and in, in their covenants. Instead, he calls them to boast in their, in their high position, in their height. And he, the ESV captures this word well with to boast in their exaltation. James commands the humbled, the oppressed, the downtrodden, those who have been shamed, those who are lacking in this life, to rejoice in how God has spiritually and eternally reversed their fortunes. Now, boasting is not our natural response when we are brought low. When we are brought low, we may be tempted to doubt God's goodness to grumble and to complain. That's how we respond to so many of the disappointments of life. We may become embittered towards those who have been exalted. We may become depressed as we are fixated on what others have. We may be tempted to become angry at the sovereign God who has decreed for us what is harder than we think it should be. We may throw all our energy into, into, getting, to, into getting ahead, into kind of equaling the playing field instead of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. We need this exhortation 
to take our eyes off of our circumstances and to boast in spiritual reality. In God's grace, our humbling circumstances, our humbling circumstances are often the key that opens the door to the bank vault where we can see the riches we have in Christ and we don't get that key until we are humbled and, and, and brought low and are hungry. The hungry look for food, not the satisfied. But what a buffet Christ has set for his people who realize that they are low. So this is why, in verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances, the lowly brother, is to glory and in his high position. He has, he has entered into the bank vault of God's grace and he goes in and he feasts. There are so many passages, and, 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 and as you see in our email that goes out, there's a link to the study guide. I've got these passages there. I probably can't, can't look at all the ones that I have there. I, well, if you are feeling low, brother and sister, if you are feeling humbled, if you are feeling ashamed, what a sweet consolation to our soul to open up Scripture and look for how you have been lifted up, to look, look for the ways you have been exalted. And even we see in James 2.5, he uses the same reasoning. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? It's just an example. We are heirs of the kingdom. Or think of the blessings of the, of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. When we are most aware of our humble circumstances, when we are realizing that we are, we are totally in the traffic jam of life, we're to think about being part of the kingdom of heaven, of that comfort we have to look forward to eternally, that we are those who are inheriting the earth, that we are those who have our desire for righteousness satisfied, that we are the recipients of God's mercy, that we get to see God, that we get to be called the sons of God. What reason to rejoice. We get to exalt with Paul in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We exalt that we are God's children. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what we are to do when we realize we don't have enough or we are lacking in the world's currency whether actual physical or any of the other that the world trades in. In 1 Peter 2.9, we can encourage ourselves that we are that chosen race, that royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We rejoice that we are part of light. Verse John 3, 1 and 2, we can exalt how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him just as he is. What reason to rejoice, we shall be transformed into Christ's own likeness. Oh, so when you are humbled and when you are brought low, don't, don't, don't grovel in that lowliness and, 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 and embrace the world, how the world is viewing you. Embrace how Christ sees you in Himself, how God the Father sees you and all the riches you have to look forward to in eternity. And what a testimony. What, what a testimony that we are, are radically different, that we have been transformed, that we do not need what the world has to make us happy. This is why we rejoice and why we boast. 
Brothers and sisters, what humble circumstances has God placed you in? What have you been ashamed for? Or what do you potentially feel the shame of? It may be your finances. It may be your ethnicity or your appearance. Your singleness, your barrenness, your intelligence, your lack of. Your lack of being exceptional in any number of ways while, while your peers excel. It may be your health. It may be because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. In what ways do you not measure up in the eyes of your peers? Rejoice. I put a little uh, uh, exercise there uh, in the aesthetic guide. Read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And write out all the reasons you have to rejoice the next time you, you just feel impoverished and you feel ashamed and, and you're struggling, stuck. When you're in the traffic jam, read through that passage and your heart will be lifted up. Now, again, I don't want to make light of the destitute circumstances that these Christian Jews that James wrote to were, 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 were facing. And I don't want to make light of the circumstances that, 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 that people around the world are facing. Or even you listening today, some of you might be in true financial straits. Yet there is an application for each of us, even if you are financially feeling very safe right now. You have likely faced loneliness in other ways. When you feel rejection and shame for what God has not given you, boast in your exaltation in what he has given you. Don't focus on the pain of the seen, but rejoice in your unseen spiritual blessings and in your guaranteed eternal future. What happy people ought we to be? This is the first response we need to have to the circumstances of life. When you are low, rejoice in your exaltation. The second one, you probably didn't see this coming, and I think you did. When you are rich, Rejoice in your humiliation. When you are rich, rejoice in your, in your humiliation. James 1.10 begins, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. You can see that, that outline there wasn't a whole lot of work. The basic idea behind the word rich is fullness or abounding. And the focus here is on money and and and. and and possessions. The Greek lexicon describes riches, those who have an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeds normal experience. And I'm going to just say straight up, defining the rich in America is complex. It's difficult to tell anymore what exceeds normal experience. Some of you may feel rich and others of you don't. In Scripture, and what I want to do here is just kind of describe how the rich are described in, 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 in Scripture. And as you listen, um, I'm just going to say that, that, that there is a lot of complexity in America with a giant middle class. Okay, So just think about this as you kind of examine, am I rich? And the importance of you examining whether you are rich is that you're going to see some real warnings. And remember, again, it's not just... And, and, and we're going to focus on, on rich with guardian of finances. Some of you may not be rich at all, but you, you, you are totally rich in many other ways that this verse can still apply. So let's look at uh, uh, how Scripture describes the rich. The rich have enough 
have enough that they don't need to worry for the immediate future. They are able to weather some hard times without fear. An example of riches in Jesus' parable in Luke 12, 16 to 19. And again, by God's grace, I trust that you're going to see why this is important for us to go through. In Luke 12, verses 16 to 19, Jesus told a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And then he said, I'm going to skip a little bit. I will tear down my barns. He had so much stuff. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And that's just an example of being rich. Now, that person there looks really rich. He has enough for, for, for many years. In Luke 16, verse 19, says, now there was a, a rich man, and, and this is re, 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 referring to, to Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man, and, 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 he, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So there's having enough money to buy, to buy luxurious clothes, living in splendor. And I know, again, splendor is a strange concept. Um, we would all be living in splendor compared to that ancient world. Excuse me. The uh, tax collector Zacchaeus was also rich. In Luke 19:8, Zacchaeus stopped and, and, and said to the Lord, "Be Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor." He was rich enough that, 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 that he could give half of his possessions to the poor. And although he's truly repentant, there you don't get the idea that that that, that Zacchaeus is going to be struggling to make it on the other half. In Mark 12 verses 41 to 44. Um, uh, is the scene where where the widow put in her two mites. The people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. So a rich person who had the ability to give a large sum. It doesn't tell us how much. A poor widow came, and this is with the picture of poverty, and put in two small copper coins, which, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples, he said to them, Jesus did, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of their poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, I bring out all those examples talking about the rich because they show, I think, as examples, how many Americans are rich. The rich have surplus possessions and money. The poor have scarcely enough or they don't have enough. Now, I don't know who is biblically rich in our church. And I imagine that there's a gamut. There are some who have very little surplus, if uh, any, where they just don't have surplus, whether of money or property. There's some who probably have much surplus. There's some who could have more surplus if they change their standard of living or their commitment to saving. They, they could have surplus. So in a sense, they do. There's also some who have chosen less surplus because of their commitment to giving. I bring this question of surplus up because I imagine that most of us are rich in the way that scripture talks of riches. Probably most of us are rich. The rich could spend or save out of their surplus. They had more than what they needed to stay alive. So many of us are rich. Now, you, you, you might be wondering, so why am I spending so much time on this? Scripture has serious warnings for the rich. 
it's a great danger to think of ourselves as not rich if we really are. It's far better to embrace the reality or even the possibility that you are rich, even if you know you're not as rich as many, right? So, so, so it's okay to, to assume I'm the rich, and you might be wrong. You might be the poor, but, but, but err on the side of caution here. Scripture has so many verses, and I don't know if I'll make it through all these, that describe the danger that the rich face. There's the danger of trusting in wealth. Psalm 49, verse 6, I already describes, I already read this, describes sinners who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Proverbs 18, 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. Well, it kind of sounds good. And like a high wall in his own imagination. It gives perceived safety. Mark 4, 19 in the parable of the soils describes those the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, riches promises, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It's the evidence of one who does not continue in their conversion call because of the deceitfulness of riches, the lies of riches. In Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 6, verse 24, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. He's not saying that you can't be saved, but it's dangerous. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said to them, you see Jesus talked a lot about this, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Life is more than money. Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I have some more verses in the study guide if you want to explore further. I'll, I'll finish with Revelation 3.17. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And here's the danger of riches. And this was even to confessing Christians. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That is to the church of Laodicea that Jesus threatened to spew out of his mouth because they were lukewarm. They, they had forgotten that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked because they had so much and needed nothing. This is the danger of riches. Riches have the potential to insulate us against the reality of our neediness. We have a facade of independence that inoculates our soul from the worries of eternity. We forget that we don't keep ourselves alive. We can afford a new way to buy a happiness fix every time we get a little down. As R. Kent Hughes says, Riches steal, kind of strengthen the unregenerate heart against the primary requirement for entering the kingdom of God, helpless dependence. And this is why Jesus says, woe to the rich, because they don't know that they need a savior. If you fail to see yourself as rich, and if you are, 
you may miss out on these warnings of Scripture. So perhaps the safest to say, I'm rich. I may not be as rich as everyone in Orange County, but I'm definitely rich compared to billions in the world today. And I am rich compared to the billions who have lived before me. I'm not as rich as somebody. I'm going to err on the side of caution, and I'm going to listen to James. I'm going to do what he tells the rich to do. So those who are rich, who have an abundance, who have a surplus, are commanded to boast. Not commanded to boast in their square footage. Not commanded to rejoice in the size of their 401k. Not commanded to exalt in their new gadget. Nor pat themselves on the back because they have enough surplus time and resources to, 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 to spend time kind of manicuring their body or their yard or planning a vacation while others struggle to simply put food on the table. Instead, the richer command, don't boast in any of those things. Not that I think any of those things are wrong on themselves, except maybe your reason for, I guess, doing them. The rich are commanded to boast in his humiliation. Now, the best in, in, in interpretation of the verse is that Jesus is commanding the rich Christians to boast in their humiliation. And, 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 and the New American Standard has rich man, and it's because the word brother isn't repeated there, but neither is the word glory re re repeated there. I think that the best interpretation he's, is he's writing to rich Christians among them. The rich Christian should glory in the fact that God has spiritually humbled him, that God has done the impossible to them, despite their being rich. Right? It was easier for a camel to make it through the eye of that needle. But what has God done for you? Even though you're rich, he has humbled you. He's brought you low. So exalt and glory in that lowness. So when, 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 when you are rich, rejoice that God has used his law to expose the fact that you are not a good person, and that you could never be good enough to get into God's presence, that the only thing which should satisfy God's demand of righteousness was for God himself to declare you righteous in response to your faith in his son, for his son to take the punishment that you deserved. That is what we should boast in. And I love how, how, how Jonathan read Philippians 3, 7 through 11. That is what we should glory in and boast in is that we know Christ. That Christ is the one who satisfied the law's demands on our behalf when we never could and that he took the punishment of God's wrath when we could never satisfy it. That is why we rejoice. We rejoice that you have been blessed by God. And again, thinking of the Beatitudes, we rejoice that we realize we are poor in spirit, that we are impoverished, that we bring nothing to trade for our salvation, that we have no good deeds to, 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 to earn our way into God's heaven. We, re, we rejoice that we understand we don't have the righteousness that God requires. We rejoice that we are those who mourn over the horrible ways we have offended our creator. We rejoice that we are the meek who realize that we deserve nothing on earth. We don't deserve to be in the fast lane. We rejoice that we are those by God's grace that even though we were so stuffed with, 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 with possessions and accolades and everything we saw in the mirror and all of the letters after our name and all those things we could be tempted to boast in, that what we wanted was righteousness and that's God's grace working in your heart. That's what we should be boasting in. 
We should be boasting that when Christ said, sell all you have and follow me, you didn't turn away sad because of your great possessions, but instead you left all to follow Christ. And the rich young ruler didn't. And I know that, that, that Jesus gave that command specifically to him. But when Christ said, give up all and follow me, that you followed. That's a miracle, rich one. We rejoice that we've been brought low enough to say with Isaiah, woe is me for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. We, we glory that we say with Peter, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. We boast with a tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And with the centurion who said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Or John the Baptist, I can't even take off Jesus' sandals. With Paul, I am the foremost of sinners. If that's your heart cry, this is what you boast in that you've been brought low. Rejoice that you have cast yourself wholly on Christ because everything in this world, if you are rich, was against you doing that because you had no needs except God. Spirit, open your eyes to see who you really are. Oh, what reason we have to rejoice. So when you find yourself in the fast lane of life, remember that your car was found in a junkyard. That that car was salvaged and that God put a new engine into that car by his grace. And that every second you are there in the fast lane, that's not what you deserve. That all you deserve is hell. That, 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 that your enjoyment of any life to God's glory was paid by the blood of Christ. Oh, the, for the rich to glory in lowliness is a miracle. It's more of a miracle than getting a camel through that little eye of a needle where you put the thread. The reality is, is that God could leave every one of us rich ones alone. And without his grace working in their lives, they would never know their need of him. You would never know your need of God if it weren't for his grace. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you would look at your life and boast, look at what I myself have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty, and you would feel great about saying that. You would be vaccinated against the fear of death. You would have a false sense of security if God's grace didn't intervene and show you how desperately you needed Jesus Christ. But all that would be a fiction. And that's what James exposes next. So first, he taught us when you are low, rejoice in your, in your exaltation. When you are rich, rejoice in your humiliation. Now he says, remember your life is temporary. Remember, your life is temporary. And that puts everything in balance. You are just in the fast lane for, for, for the barest fraction, a one, a one billionth, a one trillionth. It's so small of eternity. Remember, your life is temporary. We see that in verses 10 and 11. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because... Like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In verse 9, James didn't need to give a reason for the lowly, for the lowly to glory in their exaltation. See, the lowly are in difficult circumstances which expose that the world doesn't satisfy. 
The needy need few reminders that life is fleeting. They want time to fly. They want the ache in their belly to end. When life is unpleasant, especially when you have the certainty of heaven, you long for eternity. When you're in a jail cell, you're like, I can't wait to be with my Lord. But the rich need to be reminded that the comfortable present is temporary. The, 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 the rich are going to abruptly come to the last page of the fiction of their independence, right? Their, their, their life is a story. All of a sudden, they, well, it's over now. I thought I was so safe. James compares the rich to the unstable and temporary flowering grass. The climate of Israel is comparable to that of Southern California. Delicate wildflowers are decimated by the scorching wind and the desiccating heat. Within a day or two, their beauty is gone. In past years, you remember the rush to see the poppies before the sun gets them. Perhaps some of your yards have gone through something similar these last couple days. James compares that flower to the rich man going through his life. When life is pleasant, we tend to forget how fragile it is. There's no need to mark days on the wall of your prison cell. There's no need to watch the hours crawl by from your hospital bed. Instead, the days soar by with little hunger and many pleasures. In fact, sometimes, uh, especially during pandemics, you have to distinguish days by which splurges you're going to have. Oh, so maybe you get a mocha on Monday, maybe you get some tacos on Tuesday. Uh, I think I've said in the past how on Saturday, the kids get sugary cereal on Saturday. Friday, we might have a family movie pizza night. You know, you get to distinguish days by the splurges. We are in danger forgetting that just one day of scorching wind and we are standing before God. As James later says in chapter 4, verse 14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Ecclesiastes 5.15 reminds us, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Every one of us needs this reminder, whether we are poor or rich, but especially those who have more than enough. Friends, your riches will not last. You will inevitably go to God without any of your stuff. It'll all be left behind. You'll have no car keys. There'll be no collections of knickknacks or Disney stuff or whatever it is you collect. There'll be no title deeds or stock certificates. You won't go with any routing numbers. There'll be no brand names, no photos of your vacations. And suddenly you'll have more clarity than ever that your abundance was just a stage prop. It was just a fiction. Riches seem solid, but they are smoke. A child thinks the world of a balloon until they suddenly are forced to realize that all they were holding was air. The balloon of our riches is going to pop. The air inside is going to dissipate. 
and you will be alone before God. Now is the time to glory in your humiliation. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have never been brought low, now is the time to glory in your humiliation, to embrace the fact that, 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 that what Scripture says of you is true. It's those who rejoice in their humiliation who be welcomed into their Father's presence. Those who understand, who embrace the fact that they have failed horribly as a creature, not embrace like it's a, a, a badge of, of honor, but, but, but this is true of me, that I have failed as a creature, that I have rebelled against my Creator, that all I deserve in life is death, and all that I deserve in eternity is hell, and that the only way that I can be saved is by casting myself wholly on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in my place. Those who realize their lowliness, their spiritual, just their, their, their destitution are the only ones who will be saved. Will you be saved? Will you cast yourself wholly on the grace of God to you in Christ Jesus? But those who refuse to boast in their lowliness, who can't see their need because of how much pleasures they enjoy, how much security they've stocked away, how certain their future, they will one day find that it is too late. And then they will begin to comprehend the seriousness of trading eternity for trifles and salvation for savings and God's presence for property and pleasure. Don't wait until it is too late. And I, I can't deal with this doctrine, with all this truth, without saying be concerned for our children. Parents, we must be concerned for our children. Most of the children in Cornerstone Bible, Corner, Cornerstone Bible Church will grow up rich. Maybe not rich as everyone else, but they'll grow up rich. Most, if not all, will never experience hunger. They already need a miracle to be saved. They already need to be born again. But as Jesus says, I read this. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things, with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Any who would be saved must cast themselves on God alone. How we must plead to God for the souls of our children. We are growing them up rich. Right? It is impossible for them to be saved. It's more likely for the camel to get through the eye of the needle. And, and one of the things I think this brings us to is to demonstrate to them how much we love our Savior to expose to them the ways that we still need him as our savior, to be honest and humble uh, to, with them talking about our sin and how much we need Jesus Christ, how much we love him, how much we cherish him, but use God's law in their lives to show them their needs so that they know that they aren't okay. I don't have all the how-tos here. But we need to plead with God for the souls of our children as they grow up rich. Because all these warnings that I read to most of our kids, they apply to them. It just gives me caution about, about the, the pleasures we give our children. 
and, 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 and how we need to lead them in sacrificing for God's kingdom and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness so that they know what is, what is truly valuable. Oh, let them see you love Jesus Christ more than this world. Oh, brothers and sisters, you have many circumstances in your life. You have many circumstances. And we could talk about the financial. I, I, I'm particularly concerned about that, that we think of ourselves, at least most of us, as rich. Um, but we know that there's many humbling circumstances we go through, and they are financial, but there's many others. How are you going to respond to the circumstances of your life? When you are brought low, will you choose to glory in God's exaltation of you? Or will you become infocused and bitter and complaining and angry and venting and escaping and all those myriad of other responses you could have to not being in the fast lane in whatever area of life? And when you are in the fast lane, are you just going to look over at the poor guy stuck and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not over there. I'm sh- I, know, I know we've all felt that in some way in the carpool lane or like, I'm glad I'm not in that traffic jam. Or are we going to rejoice in our humiliation? And not even saying, oh, if it, if, if, if it weren't for God's grace, I could be over there. No, I mean in your present humiliation, that, of, that being that, 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 that total wretch of a sinner apart from God's grace of understanding that God be merciful to me, the sinner still applies to yourself. Will you rejoice in your humiliation? Will you glory in your humiliation? Will you boast in your humiliation? See, James has presented here, and he's going to do this again and again, he's presented what true wisdom is. You can see how we need to not be a double-minded man going for the wisdom. This is a hard wisdom. This is a a life-defining wisdom. This is wisdom that we need if we are going to endure the trials, the testing of life, both the highs and the lows as we pass through life. Fleeting like that temporary wildflower. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how much wisdom we need to respond to the circumstances of life. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all of those you are sovereign over every person's um, financial choices. You're, you're sovereign over our bank accounts. You're sovereign over our marital status. You're sovereign over where we live. You're sovereign over our, our skills and lack thereof. You're sovereign really of the many ways that many of us are brought low. And you're sovereign over the many ways that many of us have been exalted in this life. Father, help us to respond uh, to, to these blessings by rejoicing in spiritual reality. And really, I think for all of us, we need to be doing both of these. Lord, help us to be rejoicing in the spiritual reality of our exaltation. Help us to be glorying in the spiritual reality of our humiliation. Help us not to think that this world is all there is, Lord. And Father, even as I pray, we do pray for our, our children Oh Lord, there are so many pleasures that we can experience. There's so much fullness. There's, there's new taste to have. And all of those, we can be blessings and we can be thankful for. Uh, but your word talks about the danger of, of being rich and I'm sure applies to growing up rich. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would break through. Um, and we know that the real miracle is what has to happen in someone's heart. You are the God who does the impossible.
Bring them low that they might see the exaltation there is in knowing Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.